Father, we come before your word again today with anticipation, with thanksgiving for what you have revealed in it to us as your people. We pray, Father, that in your merciful grace that you would help us to grow and mature in the light of this word. I pray that you would guide those who know not Christ and do not see the value of the scriptures of the truth that you have revealed unto salvation. We pray that you would draw them to saving faith in Jesus And we ask, Father, that good would come of our time together in the Word. We receive it as it is, a gift. We pray that we'd understand it, that by your Spirit, you would enable us to grow in our understanding of what you have said to your church. Uh, We praise you for your goodness to us in Christ in this time that we have together. May we invest it well. May you enliven us in the Spirit to hear this Word and to feed upon it. As we have gathered around this table, we rejoice in the sacrifice of our Savior for for our redemption. And now we look, Lord, to your word, which has provided all of the foundation for this time together around this table, and that supplies for us our life and our strength. Meet with us here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What is your most valuable possession on earth? What is of highest worth to you? If we asked passers-by at the state fair, just one after another coming by these questions, imagine we'd hear a lot of different answers, wouldn't we? Some might say, my house is my most valuable possession. It costs the most, and that'd be what I'd say. Or others might say, my car, or a piece of jewelry, or some memorabilia, or even a pet. But I expect many would take the question less literally. Others might then say something along the lines of my health, or my reputation, or the fact that I enjoy liberty as a citizen of the United States of America, something like that. Others might even go take more liberty yet with the question figuratively and say my most valuable possession on earth is the relationship that I enjoy with my husband, with my wife, my family, or friends? Well, how would we take that question? As followers of Christ, we would, of course, grieve the emptiness and the blindness of any person who said, my greatest treasure on earth, what is most valuable to me on earth is my house, my car, my pet, go younger, my phone, We've learned from Jesus that relationships are more valuable than material wealth, even more than health, even more than political liberty, even more than religious liberty. We've come to know that of ultimate worth is our relationship with our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in that vein, if pressed to identify a physical possession that is of highest worth to us, It would have to be the Bible. I I realize that our copies of Scripture have little monetary value. They are cheap. They do not appreciate. But if any earthly physical possession was lost to us, I don't know of anything that would harm us more than to lose God's written word. 
Ask persecuted believers whose copies of God's word has been taken out of their church buildings and burned. Who have had their copies of scripture and any access they have to the Bible taken out of their homes and destroyed. Ask those brothers and sisters in Christ who today are in prison with no access to the word of God other than what is in their memory. Surrounded as we are by teeming abundance of resources, we struggle to conceive what it would even mean to lose all access to the Word of God, to the written Word that we have in Scripture. But the mere idea leads us to consider afresh the supreme worth of God's written Word in our lives as people set free from the bondage of sin and reconciled to God by Christ's death and resurrection. As we continue our series on the Word of God today, we consider King David's classic poetic exposition of Scripture's worth in Psalm 19. Psalm 19 in verses 1 through 6, wonderful words we will skip by today, but we find here a lyrical symphony celebrating the way that nature reveals God's glory. If we rightly see nature, we are seeing there a message of God's greatness, of His power, of his design and artistry. Yet despite nature's loud and pervasive witness of this all-powerful maker and sustainer of the universe, the created order reveals nothing about how to be reconciled to this God. How can we be at peace with the maker of creation? It says nothing. The message of redemption and how we may walk with God comes to us only by way of God's life-giving, life-transforming word. He has spoken. And in the text of Scripture, we have His written word. As Psalm 19 celebrates then Scripture's worth. It's immense worth. It's supreme worth. And we could study the words of David that are here to describe the significance of Scripture for hours on end. And I don't know how much we would remember. And indeed, just in the few moments that we have here, I don't think that the significance is to define every word and for us to remember the definition of every word. But rather, I'd like you to picture just being on a a train You're going through surrounding countryside, and it's a beautiful summer day, and as you're looking out the window, you're just seeing the beauty pass by you. You you take that beauty in, not because you remember specifically some stand of trees, or a snaking river, or a shimmering lake, or a mountain rising above, but you just take it kind of all, all in. So I don't, I don't want us to turn, I mean, David stacks words on top of words here, but I don't want to turn this into just a series of definitions, but rather to just take in the beauty and the supreme worth of God's Word, to see it afresh and anew today from the Scriptures. But the first point here in verses 7 to 11, the value of the supreme, we need to value the supreme worth of God's written Word. In verses 7 through 9, we witness this worth in what God's Word is, and in what God's Word does. So value the supreme worth of God's written Word, I think is the, is the sense of verses 7 through 11. Verse 7, 
of Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We find in verses 7 through 9 a description of Scripture's supreme worth. Again, not to get too bogged down, but just to give some definition and some girth to these statements. The law of the Lord is perfect, we read in verse 7. That's that Hebrew word Torah, which speaks of God's instruction, His counsel concerning how we should live. This law is perfect. This does not mean without error, although it is without error. But it means God's law is whole or sound or complete, perfectly in sync with truth. What is truth? Truth is ultimate correspondence with reality, the ultimate reality being God. So it is a correspondence with who God is. His laws then, this is the the wonder of it and the beauty of it and the supremacy of its worth to us. His laws perfectly synchronize with the perfections of his being. All that we see that Scripture says to do and not to do, the precepts that are there, the truth statements that are there, they all synchronize with the perfections of His being. That's what the Word is. What it does here in verse 7 is to revive the soul. Uh, the Hebrew word doesn't let it lend us to think of smelling salts for a weary soul. You know, kind of perk us up. Enlighten our eyes a little bit, that type of thing. Not, not, that's the Hebrew word's definition means to return. It revives in the sense of bringing us back home. God's word has the power to reclaim us from the disorder and decay, from the sorrow and affliction, from the blindness and folly that twist our souls into knots. We run into troubles. And we find sorrows in our own heart. God's word brings us back home. It puts our souls back on the right path when we stray. It draws us home when we lose our hope and when we lose our confidence. This word brings us there. We see Verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Testimony speaks here of a declaration God makes about his actions and his intentions concerning the future. So testimony is often used in the context of the responsibilities in a covenant agreement between God and his people. This is what God expects. This is what he is doing. This is what he will do. The word of God tells us that about the Lord. What great value is there. The testimony about what God is doing and will do in relationship to his people we find here is sure. We sang that word here today. It is sure. What does sure mean? It means it's firmly established. It stands firm, fixed, stable, reliable. It cannot be knocked off its feet. It's firm ground under our feet. Our driveway is a mountain, and uh, it's, winter's just tough. <laughs> you try to walk up and down, take the trash up, and that's just a constant danger. But sometimes, especially now, when I haven't done very well at dealing with the snow, it's so icy, you're just sure you're going to fall, but I've got patches. 
that are showing up in the sun. And wow, is it nice when you get your feet on one of those patches of gritty asphalt. Makes sense? You're trying to walk up this hill in the ice, and you get your feet on that gritty, solid ground, and now you can walk. That's the idea here of sure. It's stable. It's solid ground. This word gives us solid ground for our souls. As God gives us this covenantal insight about His ways, this revelation, what does it do? Verse 7, it makes the wise, it makes the simple wise. Simple here is one in a moral sense who's easily persuaded to do right or wrong. Depends on who I'm with. Depends on what the influences are around me. I, I can give in to right, I can give in to wrong. Because we don't really get it. We don't really get who God is. We don't understand what He's doing. The Bible is given to us to make the simple wise. To have skill in living, moral skill. Not to live like a moral simpleton, but to feed the soul in wisdom. Scripture is calibrated then to help us mature in the faith and to live fruitfully. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. Precepts address our moral responsibilities. This is straight up what we must do and what we must not do. The precepts are always right in the sense that they always correspond again to God's nature. Why is lying sin? Could God just have said, lying's a virtue. I've decided, lie to everybody. Well, we know it wouldn't work, but why wouldn't it work? Why is lying a sin? Because God is truth. Why are sexual lust and adultery wrong? Because God is the sovereign giver who is infallibly loyal to those whom he loves. Why is it right, children, to obey your parents? Because God the Son always obeys God the Father. It's right because God is right. And this word tells us what is right. It is right. The precepts of the Lord, Lord are right. And what do they do? They rejoice the heart. When we grasp the reality that God's moral commands are given for our good to unite us with His way of life, we rejoice to know that way. It brings joy. Keep that in mind. Next, the commandments of the Lord. The commandment of the Lord is pure. What God tells us to do is never a false path. It's never a sinful way. It's never an impure project. It is always pure and spotlessly clean. So God's commands never bring shame. Disobedience to God always brings shame in one way or another, one time or another. But His word is pure. It always leads us in the right way. That's what His word is. What does it do? It enlightens the eyes. Sometimes this is certainly literally true, but I think it's always figuratively true. God's word shows us the way to live. It enlightens our path. It says, here is the path. Here is the way to go. You ever been fumbling around in the dark at home? And it's maddening. You cannot tell where you're at, where you're supposed to go. And you're looking for that switch on the wall, and you find it, and you flip it, and suddenly, there, isn't there a satisfaction? Ah, oh, I can see now. I can see where I'm going. That's some of the picture here. God's Word turns the light on. It enlightens, and then connects it to what we talked about just a bit and earlier, and that is that it causes rejoicing. 
There's a, there's a satisfaction, there's a joy that's there when I know that I am learning the true way of life. That God is pointing me in the way that is good and clean and right. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. David has gotten, he hasn't gotten confused and changed the subject here when he talks about the fear of the Lord. He's been talking about the Bible, the commands of God, the words of God. Now suddenly he's talking, switching subjects. No, the fear of the Lord here is synonymous with God's Word. The fear of the Lord is what God's Word brings us to do, to have a deep reverence for the Lord. Such reverent fear is clean, speaking again of its moral purity, and it is enduring forever. That it is, though God's Word is updated in its translation. Nothing wrong about that. There's a good long history of it. It's updated in its translation. The Word of God, however, is never outdated. It never needs to be revised. It is never proven wrong with the passage of time. It endures forever. Your Word, O Lord, is settled in heaven, the psalmist said. It stands written for all eternity. Verse 9, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Rules, the Hebrew mishpat, commonly translated judgments. The ordinances, God's determinations, are true and righteous altogether. He lays down the law as judge, and those judgments are true and righteous altogether. They're always reliable, always just, always right, always in perfect conformity with his nature. Now again, there's, there's no real help here, at least in the moments that we have, to grasp every nuance of every descriptive word and result of, uh, and result of God's word. But I hope again that we've just kind of gained that look out the train window on that beautiful day and just seen the beauty, the worth, the supremacy of God's word. His word, David is saying, is awesome. It is powerful. It is life-changing. It is in perfect sync with the nature of God who created this world and to whom we will return one day. If we grasp this, we will say yes to David's exaltation in the next words. Verse 10, we find in verses 10 and 11 now, delighting in Scripture's supreme worth. Delighting in that worth. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The purest gold, the purest virgin honey are inferior to the worth and satisfying pleasure we may find in the Holy Scriptures. And on a number of levels, probably for every one of us, we say deep inside, really? God's commands are sweet? I mean, there's a lot of times when God's commands, I can, I can live with them, I can endure them, I can dutifully strive to obey them, but sweet? Beautiful to the taste of more value than rare gold? How do you look at God telling you what you want to do and saying it's wrong? How do you look at things you do not want to do and he says you must. And how do we look at that as a delight? I think there's 
many answers, certainly, but let me boil it down to two. The first is we must exercise faith in this word. We must trust it. Day in and day out, make the decision to say, it is this. It is God's word. It has this worth. It is supreme in that sense. And I put my trust and my confidence in it. That's going to lead me ultimately to delight when it gets coupled with the second idea, and that is Christian maturity. Progressively growing to understand God's word has never sent me the wrong way. It always produces good in my life. And so as I trust it each day, I put my confidence in what it says, and little by little, day by day, I come to look back and realize it's never directed me the wrong way. It has always led to everything that is good in my life. I come to David's place where I can say, I delight in this word. It is of rare value. It is a pleasure and a joy to hear the counsel of God. We might picture it like a a winding road that's on the side of a mountain overlooking a beautiful valley with soaring mountain above and a beautiful day as we take that trail. We don't ever think about it as I really wish I was off the road. I wish my car would go off the road and I'd go down into this beautiful valley and enjoy it so much more. No, we know that road, that narrow road, is what is providing the beautiful view and providing our safety and giving us direction through this valley to see like we could never see it any other way if somebody hadn't put that road there. God in His mercy puts the road of His Word there for us and we come as we trust it and grow in Christian maturity to more and more value it and to see it as indeed all precious and of supreme worth. Moreover, 11 is very much of a transitional verse pointing to what's to come. But moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. As he thinks of the supreme value of Scripture, he also realizes what it does here in this last statement of the section, that by these words, your servant is warned. Speaking of himself here as the servant, warned. We begin to see the worth of God's counsel in His Word as His Word warns us against fleshly temptation. We long, we want what harms us. Every one of us on some level in some way. Fallen in Adam, our wanters are broken. Our desires are off track. And as we follow our cravings, cravings in pursuit of sinful pleasures, selfish pride and greed, we fall into moral traps that end up exacting a heavy price in our lives. Our souls become twisted, they become empty, and we long for joy and we long for meaning. God's word enlightens us to avoid those ways. It helps us to say, don't go there in that relationship. Don't look at wealth that way. Do not think in these terms. Do not put value there. Put value here. As God warns us in these ways, we find that in keeping them, verse 11, there is great reward. There is great reward. This is not God makes you rich and takes all your problems away. 
It is the kind of reward where you reap the fruit of righteousness. As more and more of life piles up behind you, you look back and you say, it's amazing that every place where I've honored God's word, he has brought fruitfulness and grace into my life. He has allowed me to enjoy life on his terms, no matter the heartaches and trials. He has rewarded the trust that I've had in his word. As you age, as you mature in the faith, you begin to see that history build itself up. And what horror there is when we look back and say, there, at that place I trusted myself. There, at that place, I scorned God's word and I'm suffering for it today. There is, in the grace of God, forgiveness and more on that in a moment. So we always thank Him. We never despair, but we have to know the worth of this word. In fact, that word here in verse 11, keeping of them, there is great reward, leads us inevitably and bridging into this next section of the consideration of God's law, which we indeed struggle, struggle to keep. So that next point there, verse 12, we must also respond to the purifying influence of God's written word. It's an incomplete picture to simply value its supreme worth. Its supreme worth, as we recognize that, is to lead to its purifying influence in our lives. And David now merges into that when he says, first of all, verse 12, who can discern his errors? Despite the light of God's word, we all have sins we do not see. He's not saying we can never discern our errors. He's saying we cannot perfectly discern them. We are all blind to ourselves. You have sins you don't see. I have sins I don't see. But before you step forward and inform me what you know my sins are, let us also realize we can wrongly judge as sin in others what is not. So when a child of God reads Scripture honestly, what happens? When we read it honestly, when we read it consistently, with a desire to grow, what happens is we're humbled. Because we continue to come to the recognition that I don't see everything in myself. And come to the recognition that I don't see everything rightly in the lives of others either. And so who can discern his errors? In light of the fact that there are hidden dark corners within that we don't even see ourselves, David continues, verse 12, declare me innocent from hidden faults. God, I can't, I can't, even what I can't see, search through my heart and remove and cleanse what I don't even discern myself. May you find in my heart that I don't fully know an innocence a purity that is honoring your word. In the purifying beam of God's word, David continues to respond with purifying desires in verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Under the bright light of God's revealing word, we are quick to seek God's help in our battle against sin when we truly value that word and understand it. Keep me from presumptuous sins. Uh, Your translation may say from presumptuous people. 
And I, I, think the, the, I think the translation we have here is really superior, but the idea is that the sins are being personified. They're like a tyrant that wants to eat me alive. The desires of my heart, the temptations of this world. God, keep me from those temptations. Allow me to honor the word that keeps me back from them, verse 11. And so deliver me from presumptuous sins. That is, sins that are violent against God, that are deliberate and arrogant and rebellious and willful. That type of idea is what is intended here. So David's looking into his own heart and he's saying, I'm capable of anything. God, deliver me from presumptuous sins. Don't let me fall within them. Christian, do you have a habit in your life of confessing your sin and seeking the forgiveness of God? Is that a habit? Is that something that you do often? I think every genuine Christian will say, yes, I do. I recognize my sin in the light of God's word and I habitually go to him in prayer saying that I acknowledge my sin and I seek your atonement, your forgiveness. I rest in the work of Christ for the forgiveness of my sin. That should be a pattern in all of our lives. But let me ask, secondly, is it also a habitual pattern to pray that God lead you not into temptation? To keep us from sin. We're much faster, it seems, to ask forgiveness than we are to pray preemptively and to say, I keep me from sin. Keep me from entering into the path of sin. That's David's prayer here as he knows his heart and as he is sensing under the light of Scripture how given he may be to fall into temptation. Then, God, as you do this in my life, as you answer this prayer, verse 13, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Rightly assessing the supreme worth of God's word moved to conviction by that searching light of Scripture. David longs to be blameless, to be above reproach and virtuous. It's almost like we're watching David right here in real time being purified by the word. You see it? He, he, as, he, as he thinks of its great worth and all that it does for him, he then is just turning naturally to seeing that word purify and sanctify him. His heart is filled with zeal then as he pens the closing crescendo with deep passions for God. As he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, he prays, I ask that the words I speak with my mouth, I ask that the words that echo in my head that I never speak, that all of that would be pleasing in your sight. He wants his thought life and his words to synchronize with God's moral counsel as found in his revealed word. Through faith in that word, through persistence in growth spiritually, he's come to value and appreciate that word and to know of its purifying power. And he says, God, may it be. Bring this on in my life. Help me to grow in purity and in faith. This same God whose word is supremely valuable to David is David's rock. We find here in verse 14. Picture an unmovable ledge or face or cliff of rock. 
You are my rock. He acknowledges that the Lord is his redeemer. And how fitting to end the psalm here. Verses 1 through 6, he's seen that David has seen that God is his creator and his sustainer. In verses 7 through 9, he sees God's word as a revelation of his law to his creatures. So we have creation. We have the law, God as the lawgiver, but then under the searching light of God's word, David sees himself as a sinner, as one who breaks God's law, who harbors undetected sin, who is incapable of seeing all the sin in his heart, and who is capable of great rebellion against the Lord. And so David, seeing himself in that way, he sees himself as in need of a redeemer. As one who absolutely had to have God's rescue from the consequences of sin. Well, the God of the Bible is that God. And this is why he's revealed his word to us. To help us know that he is there to so rescue us from sin. He reveals his word as the counsels of life. But he also grants forgiveness of sin through David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've come around this table today, we have remembered, we have communed with this message of Jesus' death in the place of sinners to pay the cost, the price of our rebellion and his resurrection life to give us life in his name. David praying ahead is praying in some way, conscious here or not, of his greater son, the ultimate redeemer who would come to deliver us from the sin that his word points us away from. So David's poetry compels each of us then to ask, is God's written word of exquisite value to me? Is it of supreme value in our life together as a church? Do we desire it more than wealth? Is it sweeter, more sweet to us than the pleasures of this world? I recognize there's a wrong way to read the Bible. I recognize there's a way to simply turn oneself into a Pharisee and a legalist by the way we deal with Scripture. But having said that and recognized that category, I simply don't understand why Christians would move off of Scripture to seek the answers for life. Why would we find those answers in other areas, in other sources, in the latest and greatest understandings and development when we have God's supreme word in our possession? The problem is not with the word of God, the problem is with us. Do we esteem it in our daily lives by reading and meditating upon it, by memorizing its truth? Is the word of God read in your home? Is it sounded there? Does, where, you have, where there are families, are, is the family hearing that word read? Do we esteem it in the life of our church by teaching and preaching its truth, by honoring its, it as central to our ministry? And if we're struggling to rightly value God's word, let us face it square up. The problem is with us. The problem is we don't see the beauty that is there, the supreme worth of God's written word. This book is of utmost worth 
in its illuminating power, in its faithful counsel, in its eternal wisdom, as it facilitates our relationship with the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. We have in this Word and in our relationship with Christ that it reveals all things that pertain to life and godliness. We will fall short in our understanding of it. We will fall short in our recognition of its worth. But this Word never falls short. It is solid ground under our feet. God help us see the supreme worth of this life-giving word in the face of his ultimate revelation, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we are thankful for the beauty of this poem, for the reminder of the supreme worth of your word and of its purifying power. And I pray that we would so respond to it in your grace that you would lead us to understand it as we should and for those who know not Christ as Savior and do not love this word, God, I pray that you just turn on a little nightlight in the darkness, something that helps them to see a glimmer of hope, that the pangs of conscience, that the failures of life, that the emptiness that rises again and again, that the answer is found in Christ crucified and risen and is conveyed to us in this word that has been given to us in Scripture. And I pray for those of us who know you, may we be inspired and encouraged to leave this place and to recognize the supreme worth that of the Word of God and the privilege that we have to read it. May we do so with diligence, with humility, with faces turned to you, expecting to grow and be purified and to receive your great reward. This we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.